Hi, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of the SPSC podcast. Today, we will be talking about the election, and we'll be joined by Peter Ubertasio, who's one of our political science professors at Stonehill, as well as being the dean of the school. But first, I would like to give a warm welcome to our newest co-host, Brenna. So Brenna, how are you doing today? And if you would, tell the listeners why you got into political science in the first place. Hey, Jack. Thanks for having me on today. I'm doing pretty great, all things considered. So I'm originally from the Washington, D.C. area, and growing up around these institutions and with people working in the field exposed me to national politics from a pretty young age. I remember always being interested in civics and history and politics um, since I was young, but in high school, taking these comparative government classes and legal systems courses really helped me decide that political science would be the right major for me in college. Um, Since I've been at Stonehill, I've realized how versatile a political science degree is, Um, And now I'd say I'm pretty interested in international relations, foreign policy, and global security. We're happy to have you, Brenna. So, like Jack said, today we will be discussing the upcoming presidential election between the Republican incumbent, President Donald Trump, and the Democratic challenger, former Vice President Joe Biden. As with our other podcasts, we usually give an overview of the subject, but since pretty much everyone knows who the candidates are this year, I think it would be better to give a brief history on how the Founding Fathers decided our method of voting. And then we can talk about the current election. And be warned, this episode is going to be a long one. So starting with the Constitutional Convention in 1787, one of the biggest problems that the Founders wrestled with was how the president should be elected. Some argued that Congress should be the one to pick the president, and others argued that no. It should be an outright democratic popular vote among citizens. What the founders decided on is something called the Electoral College, which ironically many voters do not fully understand today. So the Electoral College in short is a collection of people appointed every four year who are tasked with casting a vote for president based on how their state votes. So the people go to the polls and vote for their candidate but the electors are then tasked with taking this information and voting based on the result. Obviously, this is a ridiculous method of voting. So Brenna, what else do we need to know about the Electoral College? The Electoral College is made up of 538 electors and presidential candidates need a grand total of 270 or preferably more to win the office. Well, most times the Electoral College aligns with the popular vote. There have been five instances where a candidate hasn't won the popular vote, but ended their campaign with a presidential win. In 1824, John Quincy Adams ran against Andrew Jackson and William Crawford, where he amassed enough electoral college votes to win the election, but lost the popular vote. In 1876, Rutherford B. Hayes, who was up against Samuel Tilden, had the same fate. In 1888, Benjamin Harrison won the electoral college against incumbent President Grover Cleveland, but did lose the popular vote. In 2000, George W. Bush against Al Gore, uh, which was essentially decided by the Supreme Court. And as you may remember, four years ago in 2016, Donald Trump won the Electoral College against Hillary Clinton, who won the popular vote. And with us today is Peter Ubertasio. Peter Ubertasio is the founding dean of the Thomas and Donna May School of Arts and Sciences at Stonehill College and serves as the interim Crow provost, as well as an associate professor of political science. From 2007 to 2017, he served as director of the Speaker Joseph Martin Institute at Stonehill College. He's a graduate of the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. with a bachelor's in politics 
and he received his PhD in politics from Brandeis University. An expert on American political development, political parties, and institutions, his scholarly work has been featured in a range of respected journals and magazines, and his knowledge of state and national politics has been sought out for a number of media opportunities. Well, thanks, Brenna. Yeah, thank you for having us uh, and for coming on. Yeah, you're having me, and I'm, I'm happy to join you. Great. Okay, so for our first question, um, it's clear that President Trump has tried to delegitimize this election and is openly against mail-in voting. What happens if the president refuses to leave, especially if the final result is close? Uh, you know, it's, it's a great question, and, and your observation is quite right, that he's, he's, he and, and a number of his allies have done a lot of damage to the process of voting and um, designed to question legitimacy of the outcome, uh, obviously assuming that the, the race is close or that he might lose. Uh, he and his allies are, are you know, wanting to create a narrative even before Election Day that there, there might be some political corruption or um, voter fraud happening. And we know that uh, uh, actual cases of voter fraud are really quite minimal, small. Uh, they, they are, uh, and, and fairly localized. Um, so it's not a widespread phenomenon in the United States. Uh, but in a close race, you know, small amounts of fraud and, and these kernels of untruths, right, that there's something fraudulent about mail-in voting, for example, or that it leads to greater amounts of fraud, um, uh, all can serve to, to, you know, delegitimize the outcome. Y your, your question, Brenda, though, is, is a tough one to answer, right? Because we've never had a situation like that where a president threatened to leave. Um, and the premise of your question is, right, so if the race is close, that means that it likely could go on. Uh, counting the ballots can take some time. If there are challenges, legal challenges to the uh, to the final outcome in various states, then those legal challenges can also drag on in through uh, December. You know, there are some hard dates that we have to hit as, as a country according to law, right? When electors meet uh, in their state capitals, when they send uh, their uh, certified uh, electoral votes to Congress, when Congress meets to count the votes, and when a president is inaugurated. So it's a, it's a fairly, you know, uh, tight, I know it seems like a long time after the election before a president takes office, but in a federal system that, that may be subject to legal challenges is fairly, fairly tight turnaround. So I, th I think that there's, there's, there's a lot of reason to believe that um, the other institutions of government will have to step up here, including um, you know, the courts, the Congress, uh, members of the military. You know, it's an impressive list of things that would all have to kind of step up and recognize that uh, delegitimizing the election and then staying in office, even if the results don't go your way, it runs against the, you know, the American spirit, not to mention the law and the Constitution. Now, on the other side, uh, Vice President Biden has put a lot of time and effort into Pennsylvania and has had to tread carefully when talking about fracking, which is important to the state's economy. Um, despite his promise to not outlaw fracking, Vice President Biden stated his goal of moving the United States away from oil. Will his performance in Pennsylvania be the deciding factor in this election? Well, it could be. Uh, you know, Pennsylvania is, is uh, the polls there have been consistently close. Uh, president Trump and the vice president, the former vice president, made a lot of play at uh, Pennsylvania and its electorate. 
And so, you know, they, they're spending a lot of time there because they recognize that it's close, that the race itself could be close, uh, and that Pennsylvania has swung between Republicans and Democrats in the last few cycles. So it's, it's a big uh, electorally rich state. And, um, you know, Pennsylvania is a little more of a microcosm of, of the country, right? You know, big urban areas, uh, lots of suburban areas, lots of rural areas. So, you know, it, it's a more diverse state than you know, say some of the states in New England. Um, and fracking is a, is a big part of, of the calculation there, but I, I, my sense is that they have overestimated the degree to which Pennsylvania voters are gonna cast a ballot based on the fracking issue alone. You know, uh, energy prices have been down for some time, which has left the fracking industry, like the oil industry, uh, wanting, right? So, so their, their product is not selling for what it was worth, uh, you know, say 10 years ago. And Pennsylvania has a much more diverse economy than, than fracking. And uh, we often associate, you know, uh, uh, say Western Pennsylvania with the oil industry, previously coal uh, and now fracking. But it, that means we're overlooking, you know, all of the high tech that's happened in the greater Pittsburgh area, for example. So I'm not sure that this relentless focus on fracking uh, by the President Trump's team is an, an attempt to undermine Biden in Pennsylvania. I'm, I'm not sure that that issue alone would be enough for Joe Biden to lose Pennsylvania. We know that a Republican presidential nominee has not won the popular vote since 2004, but many presidents have still been elected to the White House with only the votes of the Electoral College. Why does the U.S. still use the Electoral College if it can yield a president that is not elected by popular vote? Leo, that is an excellent question. And I think the answer can best be summed up in, it's really hard to change the constitution. And uh, as you know, there are lots of democracies uh, in the world that elect heads of government and none of them have chosen the electoral college. And so we've developed over time, a lots of rationales for why it is essential to the American system. And you know, it is a product of, a, of a, a moment in time when the Constitution was created and uh, a, a byproduct of, of thinkers who distrusted direct democracy. And uh, we're also creating a federal structure where, you know, states were, were sovereign and states were the most important political actors or political entities in the original United States because the federal government was fairly weak, relatively speaking. And so the Electoral College enhanced the power of those states, and it also removed presidents, uh, at least the design was uh, to remove presidents from popular whims, popular passions, uh, and um, not link them directly to public opinion. I, I tend to think that that's still a, a good uh, goal uh, uh, for a chief executive in a country as large and diverse as ours. Uh, trying to ascertain what the public wants in any any particular issue is 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 difficult, if not sometimes a fool's errand. Um, however, uh, the electoral college itself has changed because not long after the framers of the Constitution put it together, it it failed. Uh, in in the first contested election we had in in the election of you know 1800, it is it has not worked in the way that they uh, intended. They didn't imagine political parties, for example. They didn't imagine party tickets such as we have them. And so the Electoral College has persisted in part because the Constitution is a very difficult thing to change. And more often than not in our political history, the Electoral College has mirrored the results of the popular vote, right? And so it's hard to sustain 
enough interest in changing the Electoral College when for most of our history, it's always worked, right? It's, it's almost been an afterthought to most of us. Person who wins the presidency wins the uh, popular vote and then wins the Electoral College vote. And for much of, of my lifetime, um, uh, presidents were winning elections by uh, pretty substantial majorities, right? So in, in, in you know, from 64 and 72 and 80 and 84, right? You had a lot of presidential uh, landslides. And uh, when the elections were closer, say 1960 or uh, 1976, uh, the popular vote still matched the Electoral College in the sense that the person who won the overall number of popular votes won the Electoral College as well. And it's only in, in 2000 and again in 2016 where you have this, this mismatch. And, uh, and then what's developed is a, a whole um, undercurrent of, of um, desire to try to suppress votes and a focus on those key electoral states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, and try to find a narrow pathway to victory, which is what you know I think we're seeing in the in the Trump campaign uh, unexpectedly in 2016, because I don't think even they thought uh, that they were going to win. Um, but now you see it in play in 2020, right? A desire to suppress votes in certain areas and just find that narrow pathway, even if it means that we might have a minority president uh, two times in a row. And um, uh, why do, we, why do we put up with it? Well, um, it's hard to change the constitution. And we are a country now that can't even agree on, on a, a budget, on a normal budgeting process, right? Uh, we, we, there's so much we can't agree on that trying to agree on a substantial change to the constitution is just really unlikely. And what happens is once the moment has passed, people move on to other areas of their, that they're interested in. So they may really dislike the electoral college, and really want to change it, but they're more likely to put their political passion behind healthcare, education, uh, the pandemic, right? And uh, uh, even voter suppression. Uh, they're, they're more likely to be exercised and to want to do something about that. And the electoral college tends to fall in, you know, down the list of things that you're interested in changing. And without that sustained effort year after year to try and change it or eliminate it, it's just not likely. In an interview with 60 Minutes, former Vice President Biden spoke openly about concerns regarding his age in the line of succession. There is a chance of the Vice President becoming President with each administration, but it seems that with Biden this is, could be a more likely scenario. Do you think this will influence voters' decisions, and do you think voters will see a vote for Vice President Biden as a vote for Senator Harris? Yes, I, um, it's, it is a, it's an issue, right, because we have two significantly older uh, men running for uh, president, and um, uh, it, it's it's it, it's interesting. I, I think that four years ago, I would not have predicted that someone Joe Biden's age would be the Democratic nominee. Um, there are lots of reasons why it, it that turned out to be the case, but it it you know it does. The older we get, you know, we we tend to to avoid this. In certainly, the president's people and Joe Biden's people avoid conversations on this. There is no denying that as we get older, many of us will experience cognitive decline. And so, you know, there, there's, there is real concern because uh, we, uh, I think, see what happens when a president is not paying full attention to the affairs of the office. And, and it is also 
at least normally for most presidents, a, a pretty stressful environment. Now they handle their stress well, but you know, you, you see a lot of those before and after pictures, presidents when they became president and as they leave, they seem to have aged much well beyond the four or eight years uh, that they're in the White House. Um, and I, I, you know, one reason for that is not that because they can't handle stress, it's because the, the kind of information that presidents do in fact get is, is um, it's jarring. And for most presidents, there's a recognition that the decisions are weighty and uh, sometimes uh, they're life or death decisions. And so president, if he's going to be the next president, he's, he's going to be the oldest uh, president we've had. And, uh, and he has is, he is nodded to that by suggesting in the past that he might only serve for one term. So, you know, Brenda, there's a real possibility that people might be thinking, okay, if I'm voting for Biden, I'm, I may also be voting for Harris as, a, as the next president. But I, I don't think that that's gonna register that highly because even in this environment, um, most Americans don't vote for vice president. They really vote for president. That's really where their focus is. If you are a Democratic Party insider, you know what's happening here, but it's, it's what happens every four years. The, the vice presidential nominee is, is the leading candidate for president either four or eight years from now, because Kamala Harris will, will have benefited from a, even though it's a pandemic, so obviously different, but Right, she has now benefited from running a truly national campaign. Uh, she will have very high name recognition. So whether if Biden runs for doesn't run for re-election, she she will be challenged for the nomination, I'm sure, but she will be the leading candidate. And if if she wins and you know, um, if they win and he runs and wins re-election, then it's in eight years from now she'll be the leading candidate. Vice presidents have an edge uh, over over everybody else. So I don't think that's gonna factor into the decisions that voters make or have been making or will make on Tuesday. Um, I think people who really like Kamala Harris were already gonna vote for Joe Biden. Now, while we're on the topic of age, uh, historically senior citizens have been um, the largest turnout group in elections. Um, but with this demographic being the most susceptible to COVID-19, do you think there will be a decrease in voter turnout among senior citizens this time around? Uh, it's a good question, uh, Jack. I don't think so, because um, uh, in many places we've made it easier for seniors to vote, right? Get your ballot early, uh, mail it in, or vote early. And so uh, I think in those, in those places that where, where seniors don't have access to early voting or mail-in ballots, then, then there's a possibility, it, and particularly because we're going in, this looks like it's, we're gonna, going into the worst week of the pandemic in terms of the overall numbers uh, all, all around the country. And um, if you're susceptible, you know, if you're at a high risk category and you haven't been able to vote, you might not wanna be standing in line in a crowd on Tuesday uh, to cast your ballot. But I, I suspect that the numbers will be fairly similar because there's so much early voting happening and, and, and so much mail, uh, voting by mail happening around the country that a lot of those folks will have been able to avail themselves of that. And we're seeing numbers that are really impressive, right? So I think I, think I saw, I, I should probably have double checked this, so you can fact check me later. Um, but I think I saw that the numbers in Texas and mail-in voting is, is getting fairly close to the number of people who voted in total four years ago, right? So that, that's a pretty impressive figure, which would indicate to me that, you know, people are finding a way to vote and the numbers will still remain pretty high. Our next segment deals with voter suppression. It's going to be like 
four, around four questions from each of us. Uh, voting rights activists have warned of increased voter suppression as individuals head to the polls uh, to cast their votes. How serious are these claims and should we be worried? Uh, we, yes, we should be worried. Uh, we know that we, voter suppression is not a new tactic, uh, but it has been refined. Uh, and it has been in some uh, instances around the country um, institutionalized, meaning there are, there are institutional public policy ways that you can suppress the vote. It's not, it's not just you know, trying to prevent someone to show up on election day you know, um, by uh, some of the rules we have regarding our elections, I think very easily can be defined as voter suppression uh, techniques. So uh, beyond that, yes, we, we should be worried. We, we have a president who seems to be openly calling for, as we started, as we noted at the outset, right? Uh, he has openly uh, suggested that the election may not be legitimate uh, and has called for uh, lots of, you know, um, uh, he's called for some of his supporters to, you know, in effect, stand guard at polling places. And, and that can be a voter suppression tactic. And so I suspect this will play out. Unfortunately, I suspect there will be, you know, pockets of, of violence at various voting places around the country. Um, I, it doesn't tend to play out in the way that, that the, the president thinks it does, right? Like he keeps insisting that tens of thousands of ballots have been found in a river somewhere. That, that is inaccurate <laughs> and uh, there's no evidence for, uh, for that. Um, what is more likely is, you know, outright intimidation at key precincts and in, in important states. So, you know, for example, um, it's never, it's never impacted the vote one way or another, but in Massachusetts, uh, you do not need a license to vote, right? And um, there's, there's a, a, a reasonable debate to be had about uh, how someone proves their identity when they turn to vote. But the law is you don't need your license to vote. And a few years back, there were some activists uh, in the state who, who wanted to change state law to require a license to vote. And they were spreading rumors and showing up with signs at polling stations saying, you know, that you needed to have your ID. That's a voter suppression tactic, right? Uh, they, were, they were peddling in, a, in something that was untrue uh, in order to uh, intimidate people and to prevent them from voting. In Massachusetts, in certain communities, that can make a pretty big difference in who turns out and who does not turn out. Um, and so I would, I would expect to see those kinds of tactics. There are other, there are other ways, right? It's not, it, it, these are not new, it's just that our ability to use them are, is enhanced in, in our digital age. You can you know, robocall people to tell them the day of the election has been changed. That's an actual tactic uh, that is used. And, um, or that their, you know, that their their polling station has changed location. In some states, they've closed polling stations. Right, they've made it more difficult in high population areas for for people to vote. Right, you've seen the lines. Uh, those lines don't exist because there's so many people turning out to vote. Those lines exist in some instances because states have reduced the number of places where people can turn out to vote. Uh, and so all of that mixed together. Uh, is designed to reduce turnout and right there are there are political interests at stake there are political actors who benefit from reduced turnout so what areas of the country do you think will be most affected and how does the threat vary according to state or precinct that is a good question jack that i i, I want to just say I, I i probably can't fully answer 
um, because my my expertise is not in um, uh, voter turnout uh, or or voter suppression. But I, I think that we're likely to see, we know that that where um, there has been an increase in voters of color in a state, state legislators have tended to respond with more restrictive measures. So if you look at, at some of the more diverse states around the country and then overlay that with which are the most competitive states electorally, I think that's probably your answer, right? So I think that you should be watching closely states like Georgia uh, and states like Texas. And of course, then it's no coincidence that Georgia and Texas are, are trending purple Right, and are a little more competitive this time around than, than they had been uh, in the past. Georgia in particular has two very competitive Senate races uh, in addition to a newly competitive presidential race. Um, and so that, that's where I would, I would be uh, focusing my attention, though there are other places, right? It, it, it's not unique to those two states. The tactics like that can be used uh, anywhere in the country, and so many of them can go undetected that it, it's hard to know, right? The example I gave you from Massachusetts is probably not widely known because Massachusetts isn't a particularly competitive state at the at the national level or indeed even at the state level, uh, but in certain areas of the state, control of city councils or a state rep seat is really important. And to kind of close out this section, um, do you have any suggestions as to what we as students can do to keep our election process fair and safe? Well, the very first thing that you can do uh, is to exercise the right to vote, right? So politicians do respond to overall numbers uh, and they pay very close attention. And I think the turnout among young people is going to be pretty healthy this time around. Um, the, the, the key for me always, and I, I would hope the key for you, is not just uh, the presidential election where turnout is, is healthy. And I think among young people will be better this year than it was four years ago. Uh, but it's what happens two years from now. We know that it plummets, right? You know that that uh, people are going to turn out now and then they're going to stay home two years from now. So how do you find a way to sustain uh, voter turnout from a presidential to uh, congressional or state races or local races? If you can fix that, Brenna, you will you will be um, uh, a savior of American democracy because we just we know that. We, we know what the pattern is. And so how, how do you just get people to vote and then sustain it so that they're always turning out, not just when, when the presidential race is on the ballot? So that's the first thing. I mean, just getting people to vote uh, is really important. And then, you know, you can get involved. Um, you know, there are th a number of things that you can do. So as young students, I think I should start by saying there's a lot of research that you can do on, on voter turnout on uh, election law um, and look at what they're doing at the state and local level. And, and as you know, I think one reason why voter suppression is allowed to persist is because the, the American system, we don't have one system for running our elections. We have 50 different systems. And uh, so we have, a, we have a decentralized electoral structure. And the more decentralized power is, you know, there's, there's one frame that says, well, keeping power closest to the people is the best way to keep those in power in check, right? And that, that is certainly a, a, a line of thinking that runs from the founding era up through today. The other thing we know to be true, though, is that the more decentralized power, the more easy it is to, to have uh, higher levels of corruption. And so it's harder for us as citizens of, say, Massachusetts to know 
what's going on in a state like uh, Georgia and vice versa. Um, and so studying election law and getting involved in that field is really important because you, you become an expert in what's happening uh, around the country. And so many of these initiatives are state legislative initiatives. Uh, and so if you really wanna be able to impact what's going on in states that have a high level of voter suppression tactics, you, you need to really start to learn a lot about what's going on there. Uh, and and uh, studying election law and um, uh, electoral behavior and systems uh, is a is a really good way to begin, and then obviously, uh, you know, being involved, staying abreast of information, figuring, you know, listening, learning, uh, and a good dose of activism um, and money supporting those causes, uh, which is not something as young people we really expect from you, but you, you know, it is it's important to highlight those initiatives and organizations that are trying to cast a light on voter suppression tactics. So, Professor, the final question I'm going to ask you is a question that's on everyone's mind around the country and, dare I say, around the world. Who is poised to win on Tuesday? Uh, Leo, the person who gets the most electoral votes is poised to be the winner of the presidential election on Tuesday. And um, so, the, obviously, I'm not, I, I find that a very difficult question to answer and, and I'm going to give you the long-winded version why and hope that you forget that you asked it. But the, 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 partly it is, um, we live in a 50-50 country, right? The, our, our country is pretty evenly split and um, that had not always been the case. You know, when you look at other decades, as I said, there were lots of landslide elections and uh, we live in an era of, of, of elections that are far closer um, and a country that is, you know, split down the middle and an era of negative, you know, partisanship, which I, I view the latter to be particularly unhealthy. And, um, it, you know, it, it makes it very difficult to forecast. So this is what I would be looking for. And I know the three of you have already that these are the kinds of things that I would be interested in charting if I wanted to make an educated guess about what's going to happen on Tuesday. And, you know, state level polls over time. And state level polls over time demonstrate that this is gonna be a very difficult election for Donald Trump to win. You know, because the, the polling in the states that he needs in order to get to 270 electoral votes, um, you know, almost all of them have consistently had him either underwater or a, with a narrow lead. So uh, other states that he shouldn't have to worry about seem like he might have to worry about and I go back to Texas and Georgia, right? Those seem to be states that are causing uh, the Republicans some concern this year, not only at the presidential level, which I think they'll win, but at the lower level. You know, the Senate races are unusually close. Um, and so though all the polling, all the good polling at the state level suggests that Biden is more likely than Donald Trump to win. What I would what I what I would say to you, however, is that you know this is still a key weekend, and though millions of Americans have voted, millions more have yet to vote, and sometimes there are movements happening the week before an election that are not easy to detect by polling, right? Um, but that can be throwing the election one way or another. So I I I don't I think two things are likely. It's either going to be a close election. And I think Joe Biden is, is, is more likely to win, given the polling that we've seen. 
or there could be movement toward Biden over the course of this weekend that would make it not a close election. And, uh, you know, something more akin to elections at, at other moments in our history where he safely wins uh, at least the Electoral College. And um, I, what I doubt will happen is that there's going to be significant movement between now and Tuesday toward the president. You know, again, that, that consistent, tough polling, uh, the lack of strong support among the demographics that he needs uh, to win, and the fact that we're, you know, we're living in what looks to be like the worst weekend of the pandemic since it started, uh, and also an economy that has shrunk. Even as it started to rebound since, since July, the economy is smaller today uh, than it was a year ago. And there are a lot of people unemployed or underemployed as a result. So all of those factors would suggest it's very difficult for an incumbent president to find that, that pathway. His path to victory is extremely narrow right now. That doesn't mean it can't happen. It just means uh, as each hour goes by, uh, it's more and more unlikely. Well, thank you. Uh, that's all we have for you this evening. Um, hopefully this time next week, we will have a clear understanding of um, what happened. And uh, hopefully we can reconvene in class then. <laughs> yes, I hope so too. I really do hope that by this time uh, next week, there is a victor and we're talking about the transition. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in. It's important to vote in every election, but now more than ever, it's urgent that you get to the polls. We will have resources on our Instagram regarding where you can find your polling location and other voter resources like tracking your ballot. From all of us at SPSC, thank you and see you next time.